And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. It's not about me I'm only here for a minute And I know that I can't fix it I can help even just a little bit Won't you let me try Hello, welcome to our Lads and Powers. This podcast is brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on-demand Learn more at directtv.com. I am Scott Powers, and I am with Mark Lazarus, who is in Seattle. Mark, hello. Hi, Scott. How you doing? Good. How's uh, how's Seattle? Um, I haven't really got a chance to explore yet. I got I got in late last night, and I wasn't really feeling well from the bumpiest flight in the history of flights. Um, but I'm looking forward to uh, getting done here and uh, going out, getting a COVID test because I have to get into Canada in a couple of days. And then uh, hopefully getting a chance to see the city. I, I have some friends out here that have been telling me like where to go. Like I, I really wanted to go see Mount Rainier, but apparently it's like two and a half hours away. I thought it was closer than that. And you need snow chains. You don't have to have you don't have to have them on the car, but you have to have them in the car. They won't let you in this time of year. So I don't think my little uh, rented Hyundai Ionique is gonna get me into Mount Rainier. So I might have to find something a little closer to do. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, probably not do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stranded on some mountainside in some little uh, hybrid car, that'd be bad. <laughs> what uh, are you going to do? Uh, any Pearl Jam stuff? You know, there's a there's a museum of pop culture about a few blocks from my hotel, and apparently they have a Pearl Jam and a Nirvana exhibit. So I'm probably going to go check that out. Although I, uh, the internet tells me it's underwhelming, but you know, the internet lies sometimes. So yeah. I'll give it a, I'll give it a try. 
Yeah. The, there's some there's some there's some like sketchy tour where it's like this underground Seattle grunge scene tour that I saw that someone recommended to me and it's like 65 bucks and you literally just sit in the back of some woman's uh, uh Dodge minivan so it holds like three people at a time and they just kind of go around like this is where Pearl Jam played its first show this is where they <laughs> shot this video and it's like uh it was it was booked for today but I'm also not sure I would be just jumping into some random person's car pandemic or no but uh, I, I love the idea of it it's very it's very grunge <laughs> Nice. Uh, so hockey in Seattle, though, that should be uh, a new arena, something else to check out. I think you've been to every other arena at this point, yeah? Yeah, I got, I got this one uh, today. It'll be number 37 for me. And then uh, UBS Arena on Long Island will be uh, in a couple of weeks. That'll be 38. So looking forward to that. Always nice. looking forward to seeing new, a new rink and, you know, trying to figure out where the damn press entrance is and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it was interesting to see even the Blackhawks over the last few days kind of excited to go somewhere different and new, you know, like for them yeah. to... Uh, and I'm sure it's just it's another Ritz in another town, but it's you know like, <laughs> it's it's going to, yeah it sounded like they were kind of excited to venture out one one to, to go to Seattle, but also you know they made a good point that this is like their first true road trip like they had the yeah. one early in the season it was pretty quick and then they uh, they had the COVID outbreak and a lot of the trips have been pretty short so like they feel like this is a team bonding uh, you know like event that they haven't honestly they haven't had many long road trips in in last few years and. Especially this team being so new that it sounded like they were all looking forward to, you know, especially with being able to go out and go out to restaurants again and, right, and not exactly, have to go yeah. through the same COVID, uh, COVID protocols in the last years. After this game, they've got two full off days in Edmonton. And you can imagine what that would be like last year when you just couldn't leave the hotel. But now you can go out to dinner, you can go to a bar, you can you can do things. I, you know, it's it's funny. We used to always like complain about the circus trip and ice show trip to some degree because they were bears. You know, they were six, seven cities, 13, 14 nights. They were long trips, but the players loved them. You know, I, no offense to their families, but they got to unplug and just think about hockey and, and just have fun for a couple of weeks. And uh, they, they always seemed to do really well on the circus trip. And it was kind of springboard them forward in the season. Uh, there is value in those trips. And I miss those trips too a little bit. This is my first like long, long trip in you know, there was like an eight-night Western Canada trip uh, right before COVID hit, where it started and ended in Winnipeg, I remember. But this is a little bit more, you know, leisurely. There's some off nights and there's, it's some chill and you get to a few cities. And, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Like, I haven't done this in two years. But the, the beauty of these trips is how much easier they make the rest of the season. When they had the circus trip and the ice show trip, you were getting more than a quarter of your road games in two big blasts, which meant the rest of the season you were home a lot more. And I think yeah. that's why you saw people like Jonathan Taze start complaining about the schedule all of a sudden. Because once they had it like every other Western Conference team does, where it's just one-offs here and there, uh, it's brutal. So these long road trips, you know, they can be kind of a hassle. And if they go if they go poorly, they can be really, really, you know, you know, morose and sad and and, and unhappy. But uh, as a whole, I think players they they like this kind of trip more than just you know off to Denver for the night. They'd much prefer this. Yeah, I'm curious from an on ice standpoint how this trip goes because. Uh, n- not that Seattle's played really well, but analytically, aside from goaltending, they've been solid. I, I you know, um, Edmonton, you know, Edmonton's playing really well. They, yes, they, they could are. be a real bear for the Blackhawks. And um, yeah, the, the, I, I guess, you know, they've built up some confidence with these last three wins, but not necessarily, you know, like they, I thought defensively played well in some areas, but goaltending carried them in, in, in a lot of, in, in all three games, goaltending was a lot better than it had been. It was the most consistent three-game stretch of the season. Um, but they're still not scoring, you know? Like, it's um, the play a 2-1 game against Edmonton, that, that could that could be pretty tough, you know? So I, I'm, I think they have, they're, in a, they're in a good spot. Like, they're, they definitely have kind of gotten out of their funk of the losing, the losing streak and, you know, losing a bunch of games. And then they have some confidence back. But 
Um, I, there's a lot of work to still be done with this team. You know, like that. You know, like Derek Kings. Uh, you know, they work on some neutral zone stuff, and um, I, I just I think I also think there's some limitations with this team. Unless you get Kubalik and Taves and some of these guys going, it's like they're just there aren't many offensive players at least producing right now, and um, it'll uh, yeah. I, I think Caleb Jones returning the the lineup will help, and you know, the Hagel was on the ice today. Um, so maybe at some point in this trip he gets in, but um, yeah, I, I'm I, I'm curious too because I think King's kind of getting a little bit more comfortable and kind of figuring out what this team is too. But there's an understanding that they might have to be more of a defensive team, and that's sort of I think Colleton was playing to, and not necessarily the lines were correct at the time. But like when we saw more of those defensive players, even throughout the lineup, that he sort of understood that this team had yeah some of those setbacks. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you, you brought up a good point with Kubalik and Taves and to a lesser extent Doc. I mean, these guys just are not scoring, but they're generating a ton. They're playing very well. Like Jonathan Taves' numbers are terrific this year. He's been really good and he hasn't scored yet. They played this entire season. He's got 15 games. He's got no goals. You have to think that the floodgates are going to open. Just law of averages, he's going to start getting hot at some point. And then if he can do that and Kubalik can get hot and if Doc can start finishing a little bit more, then all of a sudden you start, you know, well, maybe they don't have to win two to one. Maybe they can win three to two. Maybe they can win four to three. The game here that concerns me is obviously Edmonton because like you said, the neutral zone is their biggest problem. And nobody in the history of the world has been better at just plowing through the neutral zone than Connor McDavid. He's going to score like 75 points in that game if the Blackhawks play the way they've been playing for the most part. I think they look at this trip and you have to think two and two would be a great trip. If you win in Seattle and you win in Vancouver, I mean, Edmonton and Calgary right now are two of the best teams in hockey. Like those are, those are games that the Blackhawks are not supposed to win right now, but you can beat Seattle. Like you said, the goaltending has been atrocious. So that's a winnable game and you should be able to beat Vancouver. Who's all kind of in similar disarray. So if you can go two on two on this trip, I think you're feeling pretty good about yourself going into the, you know, the next phase of the schedule, which is not easy. It's got a lot more travel. There's a lot more games. Um, This is an important stretch for the Blackhawks to figure out who they are structurally to get some guys on the board offensively and to get some, you can't go Oh three and one on this trip because you're right back where you started then where you're just out of it completely by, as they say, American Thanksgiving. You know, it's interesting about, I, I was looking at Taze's numbers and, and his numbers are are good, but it's, uh, it's also that Hagel seems to have had a huge impact on that line mm-hmm. driving possession where with uh, Taves and Taves with Hagel, it's like 57% course. Like they're driving a lot. And then without him, I, I think it's even under 50. So, it's interesting. How well, Jujar Kara is a perfectly fine player, but he doesn't have the offensive instincts of a Hagel. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, I, yeah, I think it's just just getting the puck up ice and stuff. You know, like it's yeah. uh, like it's been the, the defensive numbers for Taves have been pretty good, but it's it's more of the uh, yeah the the chances and creating and then and even I mean Hagel, um, you know Hagel creates a lot of chances too, but he just it's it's been about finishing and he has four goals and I think he still leads them in five on five scoring, but. <laughs> Um, it's, uh, yeah, when, when Kubalik's not producing, and Kubalik talked today about, um, you know, just having to get shots on net and, um, you know, there's games where he doesn't have a shot on goal. And, and for a player like that, that's probably just inexcusable. Like they need, um, even to bring it, like the brink off to a good start. And I wrote about it yesterday, but, um, you know, the brink I think is two or three, five on five goals. I, I think Hagel, the brink and Kane are the only ones with more than one five on five goal. Like they, um, and the five on five scoring, you know, it's only a three game sample size with Derek King, but it's a little bit. It's even they're scoring less under King than than they were Carlton, and obviously defensively they're playing a little bit better. At least the goaltending has, and um, so yeah, it'll be. You know, I you know I wrote about Lucas Reichel today, and but I, I almost feel like they're waiting for Tyler Johnson to get healthy and Hagel, and then you know Entwistle is a little bit further down the line, but they still kind of want to figure out what this team is. You know, Caleb Jones will be back on this trip, and. Um, 
you know, it, it's hard to stay completely healthy in the NHL for a while, but I, I think they, they still want to figure out what this team is when they're all together. And um, so, they, yeah, I, I think this road trip might be a good opportunity for some of that. Yeah, Jones will be interesting. I mean, Seth Jones has been excellent for the most part this season. Um, but Caleb Jones was probably the most impressive Blackhawks defenseman in training camp and in the preseason. Like, I didn't expect a whole lot from him. You know, talking to people in Edmonton, they're like, hey, at least fine. He's a good third-pairing guy. He'll play. But he was he was all over the net. Like, he was offensively aggressive, like, to the point where it was like Eric Gustafson without the mistakes. Like, he was around the net. You'd, you'd see him in the crease sometimes. He'd be behind the other – behind the net and, you know, making plays. And, you know, as long as you're ready for that, as long as your partner is ready to cover for you in that, that could be a big asset for a team that can't score. You need someone – you need someone who can pinch and attack – aggressively but also wisely someone who's not just doing it willy-nilly the way Gustafson does a lot and that's who Jones is likely to replace in the lineup so I think he could be an interesting addition here if he can find it's tough because he hasn't played in what uh, almost two months now it feels like six weeks something like that um it's tough to just walk right in and and pick up where he left off but if he can if he could be around that player he was in camp I think he'll be a real nice addition that can help solidify the back end and uh you know on top of that help the five-on-five offense which like you said is is as big a concern right now as the defense is Gustafson's been his ice times. I, I feel like that's one of the biggest. A few adjustments that Kings made is that one. He's obviously, uh, and it, it sounds like Crawford's. You know, Crawford is running the defense, so it's been his decisions. But then, you know, like some of the ice times been altered. But mo- some of it's been matchups too, where I, he he's more likely to disrupt like a four line flow than Colleton was. You know, like yeah. I feel like there's at times where he'd throw the you know Colleton would throw the fourth line in the offensive zone draw and and. King is, is gone away, and I think it's more like Quinville we've seen where they're, they're trying to match up better. And it's like, well, even if Taves had just been out there two shifts ago or a shift ago, they're going to put him back out, there, you know, like the offensive zone draw or Kane's line back out there where um, I, I felt like – and, that you know, in some of it, it's it's just – and I think Mark Crawford has a little bit more say with King, so I think he's – he's some of this is him driving it and and probably using some of his NHL experience and not not that Carlton you know kept Mark Crawford quiet but I think Carlton very had his ways and he and and you know like he made a lot of decisions too so it, it's been interesting to see. Um, There's definitely a sense that Crawford was Jeremy Carlton's assistant where. Uh, he's Derek King's associate. Like, there's definitely an associate <laughs> yeah. coach field where where yeah. they're kind of they're not one they're not one and one one A, but they're like one A and one B. Like King, it's King's team, but he will defer to Mark Crawford. He, he's giving Mark Crawford a lot of power in this team, which makes sense because he's been a head coach in the NHL and he's been an assistant coach in the NHL, and Derek King hasn't. So, the, you know, I'm curious to see how that evolves. Does, does Crawford keep that authority and that power all season long? Or does King slowly kind of take the reins of this team himself and really take command of it and put Crawford back in that place he was as the number one of assistants as opposed to like an associate head coach? Yeah. And I, I wonder if we, we, we'll see it, though, either, because I, I think I think King, a lot of the stuff that King does is, is it's very low key. But it's also behind closed doors where right. I, I think even in practices like he doesn't mind Mark Crawford, you know, leading it a little bit. And, um, I, you know, from everyone I've talked to, that's a little bit of King's personality, too, where like he's just, you know, he doesn't um, like he doesn't need that authority. And not, not, he doesn't need authority, but he doesn't need like that recognition, you know, like he's he's fine doing the job as he does it. And, you know. Um, so I, yeah, I, I wonder how much we'll see, but I, I think even now, like, I, th- I think the neutral zone, like them working on neutral zone stuff, it's, it's, it's been very specific to what he's, he, he and Mark Crawford, you know, I imagine it's just, it's basically the two of them in a room at this point, you know, with Kunitz around sometimes, but them kind of seeing what they decide, what needs help and what needs work. And, 
Um, and, and then yesterday in practice was interesting that they were working on neutral zone stuff, but they were also doing it while changing, you know, like, they, like you had to defend and then you had to get off quick and the next line would have to come on. And it's just, it's finding that position quickly. And, and, and that was one thing I even noticed from watching the Arizona game and the Pittsburgh game is that they change. And then uh, when they get on the ice, like it's all, you know, like it just isn't sorted and, and the other teams kind of running through, you know, walking through the neutral zone and it's an entry. So um, you'll, you'll see teams a lot often change during, you know, like they dump in or if it gets to the other side. And then uh, if you don't have that four check set up quickly, like it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty easy entry for that position. So like, that was interesting that they really worked on that yesterday. And they even worked on the long changes yesterday where, you know, like this is, uh, you know, for a while they worked on the short change and then, they dumped it in and then the next one like the long chain so it, it it was it was a lot more specific than sometimes um yeah i, I feel like they, we haven't seen a lot of that the last couple of years well i think that's that's one of the benefits of a coaching change right is you have someone coming in who has specific ideas and the specificity of the practice i remember when colleton came in the specificity of the practices were noticeable because joel just had them running the same drills and kind of keeping loose and you know they you know and, and then colleton got to be the same way where you run time of the same drills you're just kind of puck movement and, you know, you do some power play or some penalty kill, but for the most part, you're working on, you know, today's a battle drill type day. Today's an effort day. I want to see you guys with the small nets, you know, crammed together, working in close spaces. But, you know, you bring in a new coach and there's a specific things he wants to work on. And the yeah. specificity of these practices, it's keeping the guys engaged. It's keeping them interested. The practices are short, but they're hard. They're much more Quenvillian than Colletonian. And... I think that gives you a lift. Now, how long can you do that for? How long does that get old? I mean, it's the same thing as anything else. You know, the, the newness wears off eventually. But so far, King has these guys and Crawford have these guys um, kind of focused and engaged because they're doing something different. They're doing something new. And, you know, that's fun. That's fun. When you, uh, the monotony of a hockey season. I mean, everyone thinks, oh, you're playing hockey for a living. It's fun. Sure. It's more fun than, you know, being an accountant or whatever it is you're doing. But it's also as repetitive and monotonous as anything else. So when you bring in something new and some fresh ideas and some fresh activities, it keeps you engaged. And right now the Blackhawks are fully engaged. And I think that's translating partly to the ice. And I think that's why you see that, that dead cat bounce, as I said, about when you get a new coach, there's always a lift because it's different. So I'm curious to see how long that will last for, how long King can sustain that interest before the monotony of the dog days of hockey, which are coming December, January, February. Those are the worst months of the hockey season, especially if you're out of the playoff picture. Um, you know, how how long they can stay engaged and, and stay excited by Derek King. Because right now that's their advantage that they're excited for the first time this year. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and and, and I think he's just, he's been the perfect voice for what they needed. Like they just needed someone who who kept the light and kept it. He's so and- different, yeah. It just, it's, 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 yeah, you know, um, yeah. And again, it's over time, you know, like what it, they've won some games, so it's easy. So what happens when they, you know, if they do lose some games and go through that bump again? Yeah. Does, does, does everybody chill? Does that work out? If you go on an Owen three, one trip, does Derek King have to smash some tables and, you know, get mad? I mean, does that work? I mean, that's going to be the big question is, you know, this is fine when you're winning silly, happy, you know, look at me on the breaking bad guy. It's fun and it works. But what is it still going to work when, when things inevitably downturn? Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight? Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So the uh, the other thing we we're going to we we're going to talk about today was the uh, with it being Hall of Fame week and uh, Marion Hosa going in yesterday and also uh, Doug Wilson. Um, I know we had some questions and one of the interesting questions you got was uh, about the uh, about the Blackhawks' recent dynasty and 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 you know just and who from that team was going to make it and who's not going to be a Hall of Famer and um, yeah, it figured. Uh, you know, we yeah, I think talk, it's a good it's a good topic. A whole yeah. lot about Hosa. I know we wrote a lot about Hosa. I feel like we've written about Hosa being in the Hall of Fame so much, even like it was just such a delay for it to happen. But, um, it, yeah, I, 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 Hosa, Taves, Kane for sure, right? Taves, Kane, uh, well, and Hosa Keith for sure. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Taves, Keith. Kane, Keith for sure. The rest is where it gets. You know, it's funny. Like we did the. Uh, this is John Warner who asked this question, by the way, and, and, and sparked this conversation. I should give him credit for that. Um, we did our, our, our Hall of Fame shadow committee again that Eric Duhatchik runs because he's been in the committee and he knows exactly how it's run. So he gets 18 people on staff. We did this last year and we did it again this year. And we, you know, everybody pitches a player, everybody discusses it, and then you have to pick your players. And, you know, I, I pitched Steve Larmer for the second straight year. For the second straight year, nobody voted for him. And he's he's in that category of, you look at his numbers, and he belongs in the Hall of Fame probably, right? I mean, he had like a whole bunch of 40-goal 40, 40 seasons, 30-goal seasons, consistent. He played in like 900 straight games. Uh, he won a Stanley Cup. Uh, he was a great hockey player. But if when you get to these Hall of Fame conversations, there's there's two things that play into it. You got... The whole of very good idea, which is legally required for someone to say that expression, where you got these guys that are, yeah, they're really good, but are they, are, were they the best players of their generation? And the problem is people have different interpretations of what the Hall of Fame is. You know, it's like the Bill Mazeroski conundrum in baseball. Bill Mazeroski has no business being in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he's in the Hall of Fame. So does that mean you have to lower the bar for future players? Do I have to lower my standards as a voter because other people lowered their standards as a voter to let someone in? Like, and that's that's where this dilemma comes in. And with the Hockey Hall of Fame, at most you can vote for four men, two women, and two builders. Yeah. And so it gets really restrictive. When you have a ballot like we had this year where you have Alexander McGillney, you have both Sedins who are, let's face it, either both getting in or both not getting in. You can't separate them, <laughs> much, much as that would be hilarious if that happened. Um, and then you've got all these other guys that, that, that are all kind of on the bubble. It's really hard to narrow it down to four. Like in baseball, you get to pick up to 10. In yeah. hockey, you get four. So guys like Steve Larmer, they don't stand a chance because there's always going to be four guys with better resumes than Steve Larmer. And maybe that's an argument against him being in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But I think a lot of these Blackhawks are going to fall in that category. Brent Seabrook is a Blackhawks icon. He's not going to make the Hall of Fame, though. Patrick Sharp, not going to make the Hall of Fame. Nicholas Jalmerson. Considered by most analytics types and most people who have ever watched a hockey game to be the best defensive defenseman of the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, he's not going to make the Hall of Fame. So I, I think it's really going to wind up being Taze, Kane, Keith, and Hosa. And even Hosa, people were surprised that Hosa got in on the first ballot, which, you know, mind-blowing to me. Of course he should be, but people thought he was in the Hall of Very Good. So it's really difficult to find that level to get into the Hockey Hall of Fame. You know, what's interesting about Hosa is that I think it's about the evolution of Hosa that's really interesting. You know, like it's he, he started off as a very offensive player, like the defensive stuff that we saw him and covered him like he that didn't there wasn't anything to it. And the, then the analytics support that it wasn't until 
uh, until he went to Detroit that it really there was an uptick and um, and then you know the one that hosted that we covered was one of the you know obviously one of the best defensive wingers but also one of probably better defensive forwards so it, it's strange that I think when when you look at a lot of the metrics like his his offensive numbers were were really good but not like elite like his defensive numbers were really good but not elite but it, but he, he evolved and then it's and then it's just the winning I think that the fact that he stepped into the three different teams and and helped them all to the cup and and then he wins three cups that there's uh there's that external like that you know kind of those um yeah those other elements that you throw into the equation and it put them over the top but it, it, it was definitely interesting because i think the host that we covered was like oh yeah he was such an elite defenseman but it, it's 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 like he became that later in his career and, and really embraced that yeah, and you're, we're, we're always going to be biased. It's not that we're Blackhawks fans or anything, but we watch these guys every single day. When you watch a guy like Marion Hossa play night in, night out, I mean, I was in that committee last year, like, screaming at people, like, on the Zoom. Like, if you don't vote for Marion Hossa, you don't know shit about hockey. You're a moron. <laughs> like, how could you possibly think this guy doesn't belong in? Because we see him, you know, you, you see that greatness every single night. It's not just looking at the numbers, looking at the analysts. When you watch him, and you know that even if he had no goals and no assists that night, just the control and the power he had over that game, the influence he had every single time he was on the ice, it's a no-brainer. And I think everyone sees like, you know, Sarah Sivian in our in our our, our our topic this year was arguing for Rod Brindamore. Because if you're in Carolina, you realize how great a player Rod Brindamore was. But how many people outside of Carolina think of Rod Brindamore as a great player? And you run into a lot of guys like that. Hosa, because he won the three cups, I think that kind of, and he did it in a very high-profile way on a high-profile team. That kind of got him over the top. But there's so many Brindamore types out there who, in their local market, people who watch them every day are like, you're an idiot if you don't think this person belongs in the Hall of Fame. And they're probably right. But you only get to pick four. It's so stupid. We, we, in, the, in the women's category this year, I got, I got some crap in the, in the, um, in the um, comments because I didn't vote for Willette, the, uh, the great Canadian uh, women's hockey player who won like 132 gold medals and was just awesome. But that's because... We didn't, you know, Natalie Darwitz and Jennifer Botterill were not in yet. And in my mind, I voted for them last year. How do I not vote for them this year? So I voted for them this year. I'm going to get them in the Hall of Fame. And then I move on to Willette. And, you know, it's because I only get to vote for two. All three of them belong in the Hall of Fame. Why do we get to only vote for two women when we get to vote for four men? The, the, the process of the Hockey Hall of Fame is really stupid. There's too few people. 18 people is not enough. Because you have, it's, it's like Congress where if like Joe Manchin says, I say no, then the whole thing's blown up. You need to have a yeah. wider sample size. And you know, so the whole process is flawed. It's fascinating to get kind of like into the weeds with it and do this uh, this uh, uh, process every year. But it's a bad system. Like you need to either open it up to the PHWA at large, have a larger committee. Something's got to change because you know to say that Natalie Darwin shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame because there's two. It, it's idiotic to me. It's the same thing with with, uh, with with some of these men's players. It's like you know they, even in the builders category, like why isn't um, you know uh, uh, Victor Tikhonov in there? He was on our list, but we couldn't get him in because you only get two. And so it becomes really problematic when there's just too many people and not enough spots. I mean, I don't want it to be so wide open that it becomes the Bill Mazeroski type Hall of Fame. Yeah. But there are years where you're going to have more than four people that are deserving. And I think the NHL needs – not the NHL. It's the Hockey Hall of Fame, excuse me, needs to allow for that. I'm curious how the Blackhawks begin handling these players again. Like they they've, they postponed the Hosa one. Um, I, I think how they're dealing with that 2010 as a whole, I, I think it's very much – you know, like we don't want to like I even now, like I, I've heard that Patrick Sharp was supposed to do some post game shows. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, they had uh, with Colin Frazier do some radio games. And I don't think he's done it um, since all the news came out where I think the Blackhawks are very much cognizant of uh, that appearance. Um, 
at, at what point does, do they get more comfortable? I mean, we've we, we seen, I think, Seabrook and Jarmelson's days are uh, later on, but does that, like, do you see those happening this year? Like, I'm curious how the Blackhawks, um, like, I, I'm sure they want to celebrate some of those teams and the problems that those players are on a lot of different cup teams, you know? Like, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a point in time it'll feel easier but yeah when deciding that time i don't know if this year this season will have it at all you know well that, that's a great that's a great transition to some of the questions we've got on twitter here because jason tornquist had this question where it's kind of what you're talking about he says do you think the fans perspective of jonathan taves and patrick kane have changed enough to affect their next contract how far would the organization go to resign them with a tarnished legacy does either one become more likely to want to move on etc and that kind of goes into what you're saying is like Things that used to seem impossible, the idea of not, of of Patrick Sharp being you know iced out of the organization or Marion Hosa not being celebrated. Well, what about Jonathan Taves not being a career Blackhawk? You know, th- these are these are legitimate questions now where you have to wonder if the team is like, you know what, we need a clean break from 2010 completely. And in a year and a half, when those contracts are up, I mean, it seemed like a no-brainer that at 34, 33 years old, they were going to get new extensions on you know July 1st this year. But now I I still lingeringly think think that they will. But it's certainly a much more plausible situation that the Blackhawks cut both of them loose, I think, than it ever was before. The, the, the possibility at least exists now, doesn't it? Yeah, and and I always thought that both those guys would get statues too. You know, like right. it'd be like it'd be lifetime Blackhawks and then statues. And um, yeah, I, I again, everything feels so fresh, and 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 Taves' comments, especially, I think, hit the fan base a, a lot harder. Um, and, and certainly, both being like it. it being on that team, I, I think that, you know, like everyone feels there, there's some accountability to it too. But it's certainly, I think the comments, especially by Taves, have, have changed some people's views of him. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I also think, like, some of it's got to be playing. So, like, it, it, Kane's still, I mean, he's, without Kane, this this team offensively just isn't <laughs> the same, you know? Like, so how much, um, and maybe it's some of its market value too. Like, do they... How much do they want to get paid here? Like, what what is their worth? Like, I, I think T- Kane could go out there and still get paid somewhere. Does he want to go somewhere um, and be with, you know, I guess it depends on where this team is at in, in two years, but does he want to go try to win another cup? And uh, how much is he willing to take? And, um, yeah, how much do the Blackhawks feel like a change is needed? And, uh, you know, even as a captain or, you know, like it, it's, and and I guess a lot of these questions next are, are, are for the next GM or president of the hockey ops too, where, um, you know, they'll, they'll come in and they could sign them as early as July 1st, but I, I imagine this is something that could maybe spill over until next season. Well, that's or, just it. If, if they don't sign them July 1st, that is all anyone's going to talk about for the entire 2022-2023 <laughs> season. Like, you, you, you have to call, you have to make a call on that. Because yeah. if, if they're not signed on July 2nd, people are like, oh, God, James and Kane are going to hit the market next year. They're going to be trade bait. We're going to trade them. At the like, it's a big deal. Like, you, you might have to move them next summer if you don't think you're going to re-sign them. So this is something the Blackhawks need to think about sooner than later because not signing them on July 1st is a huge blinking, flashing red light that they are strongly considering not signing them at all. So they got to decide. The, the challenge, the, the one challenge of both their contracts, so even moving them, is that not many teams can afford ten point five million. You know, and and even and are they worth that? You know, like is, as well as Kane is playing, is he worth ten point five million? Like, but it's one year of it. They could they could eat some of that contract for one year. Yeah, for year, sure. No, and, and that's the, and 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 I guess it'll come out to that too. Like the Blackhawks, they have some important decisions to make this off season with uh, you know I think with, with Kubalik's new contract and kind of prepare. You know, Seth Jones gets that bump and. 
Um, you know, like they they probably won some cap space to go do like the, the Hans contracts coming off the books. And um, I, I imagine that, you know, like you, you, you've you've put yourself in enough position this past offseason to, to, that you need to go win some, you know, like Seth Jones is you added him to that, not just be part of a rebuilding, another rebuilding phase. So that they need to go out and spend some money too. And um, maybe you do create a bit of a cushion, like, you know, Shaw's contract comes off the books too, which will, which will help them. But they create some of a cushion knowing that, that maybe you are going to be a seller again, you know, or, or you do need to trade Kane and Taves and that you may have to absorb some of that and, and maybe get some assets back. But um, yeah, whether, whether it's Kyle Davidson or whoever it is, it's going to, it's going to be interesting. Cause yeah, I, I, this is something that it seemed like a given that those guys are going to be signed and, um, yeah, it, it doesn't seem so much as anything. Yeah, I, and I don't want someone aggregating this podcast saying, Lads and Powers say that Taves and Kane are going to hit the market and be traded. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying the Blackhawks have to decide what they want to do sooner than people probably think because that July 1st deadline, or not deadline, but like opening of the of negotiations, like if they don't, it's going to be telling. What they do on, the, on that is going to be telling. And I think for the first time, even if they do re-sign them, Taves is not going to get the matching contract. that they, They've always had matching contracts. Yeah. I mean, it's just a fact of life that Kane is worth more than Taves is at this point. So there's a lot of interesting little pieces to this that are going to be fascinating to watch to see how the Blackhawks handle this going forward. Well, the, the other part is that, yeah, I, I, I guess it depends on whether Kane's, like, if he's just okay, just give me whatever you're willing to give Taves. But the other part is that you have Jones's contract, and then you also have a contract due for Debrinkit after the following yeah. season. And, and he's and he's going to make about $10 million, you know? Like, it's, um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting how the equation is put together and, and and you know like you have young players like Doc and you know and and some of these guys that you're gonna have to pay them eventually too. So um, yeah, it becomes more complicated as your veterans get older and what you know changing like when you paid them ten point five, like what's their next contract look like? Right. Or, you know, like there's there, there, there's so many different hurdles that'll be uh, be interesting. What what other uh, what other questions we got? Ah, uh, from Gabriella Marie, she says goalies. What's the long term plan? Is there one? That's a fair question. I think the long-term plan is Lankanen and Soderblom, right? Like that's like the the far-off plan. But for this year, it, it, it's going to be interesting because Flurry right now is playing great again all of a sudden, which is good. But if the Blackhawks are not in playoff contention, they're going to need quite a win streak here to get back into playoff contention. He's going to be one of the most valuable trade chips at the trade deadline. That said, goalies rarely get traded at the trade deadline because it's hard to assimilate a goalie into a system with a month before the playoffs. Also, there's the fact, you know, is Fleury going to want to get traded? Remember, he was iffy about moving his family to Chicago in the first place. There are so many pieces to this that I don't know what Fleury's... I could easily see Fleury just say, screw it, play out the season here, and then decide what he wants to do after the season. He's got a lot of control in that regard. But, um, you know, right now it's Fleury's team, and he's going to start a whole lot of games as the Blackhawks try to crawl out of this hole they're in. Yeah, and, and Lincoln's like, I, I, I'm not sure it's a given that... I mean, Lincoln's a UFA after this, after this year. True. The fact that he's not signed yet, like, it leaves some some question um and you know from Soderblund seems like he's been uh since been solid in Rockford lately I know they've given Subban some more starts um I, I know they like Drew Camaso a lot I mean he, he's uh he's a second year at, at BU he's probably gonna be in the world juniors and you know we've seen guys like Spencer Knight and some of these young uh young U.S. goalies that could be sooner later you know ready it's becoming a little later. more common a little more common to see young goalies come in yeah yeah, so yeah, I, 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 it'll be it'll be interesting because I think that that is one of the. I mean, it's it's a, the one position they don't have anyone basically signed. Uh, you know, even Delia and Subban become UFAs. Like you, you're pretty much other than Soderblom, like he's the only one that's signed for for next year with an NHL contract. So, um, 
but yeah, I think even with Flurry, like it, it's it's something where like he could be trade bait, but at, at seven million dollars, I mean, anyone could have taken him this year, and and the Blackhawks were the only team that could basically afford him. So it's another contract where the Blackhawks may have to eat something if they want to trade him at the deadline. And I, I imagine a Flurry, if you know, if, if it's March already, like, and if you can go to contender, like you might just play it out with a contender instead of playing it out in Chicago if they're in a losing situation, but. Um, just just remember how little we, how little the Blackhawks got for Robin Leonard, who was having an awesome season, second round pick. Trading a goalie at the trade deadline is not going to land you the windfall. No, no, like yeah, it's usually an, it's more of like an insurance situation. Yeah. Usually, um, go, I was even thinking about the Leonard. Like the Blackhawks have just kept Leonard. Like you know, like he's again five years at five million. Is that what he's making in Vegas? He's got like a great contract. Yeah, no, for sure. That would have that would have made a lot of sense back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there. So mistakes were made, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> All right, from Tom Gower, Kirby Doc status report with his new line mates, uh, who are Alex Debrinkit and Patrick Kane. Pretty good line mates to have. It seems like a significant third season for a number three overall pick. Yet it feels like he's a bit under the radar with everything else that's happened. Yeah, and that's the thing about Kirby Doc, right? Is he's very, very good. He's not scoring enough, but he's very, very. So nobody's worried about him. But he's also not taking that next step where he's producing at the level you need a number one center to produce at. So it's hard to get too worked up about him, yeah. but at the same time, dude's got to start scoring. And part of it's you lost the developmental season last year too. You know, like that. He, I feel like he'd be further ahead if he had last season. And and here you are writing today that Lucas Reichel should go to World Juniors. Blackhawks fans probably want to kill you for saying that. World Juniors. Yeah, the Blackhawks should never send anyone to World Juniors ever again after Kirby Talk. That's the theory. <laughs> um, I, I I mean they're all going to send them to all their teams and. All for all the teams for the Olympics too. So yeah, I, there, there's a lot of risk going on. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm sure someone, I'm sure someone will get here at the Olympics. Uh, yeah, I remember John Tavares in Sochi. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't, even with, I mean, five and five, Cannon Doc and Debrink could have been okay. Like it's like a lot of this team's production has been on the power play. Um, Doc Doc holds on to the puck well. He he creates like I was looking at some of the Sport Logic stats. Like he, he's got the most inner slot shots and. Uh, he, he's got a lot of uh, rush chances. Like he's just he's and and you wrote about this at length last year and just it's or, or two years ago whenever it was at this point it just he, he's not finishing and and so that I think some of that needs to be corrected. Like it's some of it's learning how to play with with Kane to bring it too. It's different because those guys do have the puck a lot. Like the Brinkett's pretty good on the rush too, and you know he likes to have the puck and Kane likes to have the puck. And so how do you fit in as a center and? I thought Pia Suter fit in pretty well with him because he didn't want the puck as much or he right. didn't need it as much, and he kind of was able to play off them. So, um, and the faceoffs are still, I, I think, it's somewhere in the thirty thirties, you know, percentage wise that Doc needs to improve there. And um, they like him defensively. I think the numbers have been pretty solid there. But yeah, it's still it's still an evolution. But um, he doesn't like he he feels like he's fine now. But he, is he on the verge of stardom? Yeah, I, I, at some point you need to produce, right? Like the, the points yeah. do matter when it comes to your, uh, you know. Well, it's just like it's just like Jonathan Taves this year. They're both playing very well, but neither of them is scoring enough. So, yeah. you know, that's a problem. And that's one of your top two centers. Like that's, yeah, yeah that's, it, it doesn't help. So uh, we got a, an email to lazenpowers at gmail.com from Scott Neese. The biggest weakness in Kirby Doc's game is winning faceoffs. But why do teams always mandate that the center takes all faceoffs? Patrick Sharp took over 3,300 in his career, won nearly half of them, and he was primarily a winger. Wouldn't it make sense to have all the forwards and centers practice faceoffs and utilize the best ones regardless of whether he's responsible for all 200 feet of the ice defensively? I mean, yeah, I mean, wingers do practice faceoffs. I mean, they kind of like to well, dabble Sharp played it. center for a bit, too. He yeah. did for a year. 
Uh, Patrick yeah. Kane played center for a little bit, if you remember. I think it was yeah. in 2010-11. That was an ill-fated experiment. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, any, the, the, the Hawks do that a lot. Where like they 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 have a lot of players who can play both center and wing. And sometimes like Ryan Carpenter's on the wing, but he's the one taking the faceoffs because he's better at it than the center. So that, that that does happen. And it's not just the centers who practice faceoffs, but the centers obviously put more time and effort into it than the wingers do. But yeah, everyone, you know, guys get thrown out of the the the, the, the faceoff circle so often these days that you, everyone has to be able to take a faceoff. But I mean, you know, I. I Everybody always wants to talk about face-offs. I have a really difficult time getting worked up about yeah. face-offs. No, the difference between being a 46% face-off and a 54%, it's like a handful of face-offs over several games. You notice it when you're on the PK and they score right off the face-off. You notice it when you're on the power play and you score right off the face-off. But other than guys like Taves who can win at a 60% clip, almost everyone's about the same at face-offs. It's all luck. The puck bounces around. Most of them are 50-50s that are won by the wingers anyway. And like the, the 95-year-old dude in the press box is like, oh, that's a win for that guy. And, you know, the stats are so unreliable. Like, honestly, don't get too worked up about face-offs, please. Yeah. Please. Yeah, and, and and the studies they've done, like it takes so many face-offs to actually equate to, to goals. And I know it's a really easy statistic to kind of pick off because it's like, oh, this center's doing well, this center's not. And, yeah, I, I'm with you too. Like it just – it's – it doesn't lead to enough uh, enough possession other than the special teams or you know the, there, there's so much change in the puck like you you know a, t- a team could win a defensive draw um and then the forecheck gets on them right away and the other team takes the puck back you know like it, it just it, you see things like that happen often um yeah I, I you want someone who's winning faceoffs like it, it certainly helps at some level um how much it, it yeah i don't think it's is as much as a lot of people think so um, I, you know, and, and Doc is young and learning and, and I think, I, think I forgot who was listening to the broadcast the other day and someone just said, you know, whoever's better at faceoffs usually who's better at cheating, you know, like right. it's, a, it's, it's, it's a matter of, uh, um, yeah, just who, under, who understands the experience, who has more experience doing and understands doing it. So, um, yeah, I, I think Doc will get better. I mean, he, he seems like he's, he's the type of player who cares about those things too. And I'm sure he's going to put the time and effort in and, um and yeah so but yeah i don't think it's like a detrimental to no. development. Uh, pete salkowski wanted to talk about the uh the series uh, style scheduling and uh i'm gonna punt on that because i have a story coming out of that in a couple of days um i was sorry i was gonna write about a month ago but then some other things got in the way but i talked to players around the league about it. i talked to bill daly about it so look for that in a couple of days um nice uh, and I, and I, yes, I talked to Jonathan Taves about the Jonathan Taves schedule <laughs> that he didn't get to experience. So, uh, look for that. And, um, we got a whole bunch of stuff coming up this week. Scott's been nice enough to give me a long weekend here before the road trip. So, uh, uh, you'll be stuck with me for most of the next week or so though. Scott's got a big story coming out tomorrow. Uh, make sure you look out for that. And, uh, yeah, well, we'll, you know, whether they're winning or losing or, uh, we're doing horrible things on and off the ice, we're, we're, we're here to write about it. So lots to do. Yep. Sounds good. Uh, well, enjoy Seattle, enjoy Edmonton and. Uh, a lot of baby. If you need to find me in, in Edmonton, I'll be at Bishop Praha. Hopefully, you can come back in the country. That'd be great. Or allowed. Ho- hopefully, Canada. I can get into Canada. That's the thing I'm worried about right now. <laughs> um, sounds good. We will. Uh, we'll, we'll figure out. I don't know what day it'll be, but we'll figure it out again. We'll be back with you next week. Uh, for Mark Lazarus, I am Scott Powers, and this is Lazarus Powers. And I know that I can fix it. I can help even just a little bit. Won't you let me try? 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.